0: It's an honor to be with you here in church today, and uh, I hope you've had a good week, and, uh, and we're looking forward to another one, in Jesus' name. Usually, I have you stand, and we read a scripture, but we're going to do it a little bit different today. I'm going to open my, um, my lesson today by asking you a simple question. Who is the oldest man in the Bible? You know who that is? Methuselah. Good. Now here's my question. If Methuselah was the oldest man in the Bible, then how in the world could he ever die before his father died? If Methuselah was the oldest man in the Bible, It was, um, you know, Paul talks about laboring in the word. And if you're a Bible student, you know what that means. There are just times when you just read and read and read and it just seems like nothing is really showing itself to you. And then you have those wonderful times when boom, you know. You have great fruitful times. I had one of these a while ago and um, it was during this very uh, fruitful study session that i i really believe i saw something what it's it's um, a revelatory insight into the word and uh, since then i have found that this thing in two other texts um, I, I I didn't read it anywhere, but it proved to me again that the word Jesus said, "My word is spirit and life." The word is a living thing, and uh, it's not of a private interpretation. And so, the Lord speaks the same thing to a host of people on a regular basis, and and that happened to me. But my 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 discovery started with a with a serious. Inquiry into uh, Methuselah. Um, and so if you're still wondering what the answer to the riddle is, it's not really a riddle, um, but if you study your Bible, you know that Methuselah's dad was Enoch. And Enoch didn't die. It says in Genesis 5 and 24, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So even though Methuselah was the oldest man in the Bible at 969, he died uh, before his dad did because his dad didn't die. And, uh, and even though, uh, thinking about this this week, I, I have never heard anyone really preach in depth about Enoch. Even though he is without question one of the most interesting people in the Bible. People in the time of Noah were not without witness. They were not uh, they they were not uh, blameless. It says in Matthew 24 and 39 it said they knew not until the flood came and took them all away so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Um, So what Jesus was saying was, um, you know, his coming should not be a surprise. Um, But it obviously is going to be a surprise to a lot of people. And he used the analogy of the flood. When you study the word, I believe you can prove that there were four Generations of preachers and teachers and prophets who warned the people about the flood. This is what it says in Genesis chapter 5, 21 and 22. Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. This is just one of many verses in the word that gives us a lesson on the power of new birth. And uh, I, I, I could possibly be putting too much emphasis on it, but I don't think so. Because in type, Enoch walked with God after there was a new birth in his life. Something amazing happened to Enoch when Methuselah was born. I know that because Enoch was given a prophecy of the coming great flood and was told as long as his son was alive, the judgment of the flood would be withheld. The word Methuselah is composed of two root words in the Hebrew language, moth and shalak. Moth is a root word which means death. The second, shalak, means to bring or to send forth. So when you put those two words together, the word, the name Methuselah means his death shall bring. And so, when I was staying there, I remember this verse in Genesis seven and eleven. It says, "In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, the seventeenth day of the month, the same day, were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened." I mentioned to you recently when the when the first lunar landing occurred, they were so excited about picking up rocks. And one of the very first rocks they picked up and brought it back to the earth and they, they did all their, whatever, quantitative, qualitative analysis on it. They were stunned to realize that the rock that Armstrong had picked up on the moon came from the earth. It didn't come from the moon. How do you explain that? I think it happened here. I think when the fountains of the deep broke up, it was like a gun that shot things out of this earth, and I think some of them hit the moon. I think that's why the face of the moon looks like a 13-year-old kid with acne, <laughs> with all them pockmarks and all that, those craters. They, they're not making craters today. This happened before. But it was a powerful thing when the flood came, and it, it just it's so specific, 600th year, second month, 17th day. If you've been here for any length of time, you know that I truly believe that every word and every letter in the word is there on purpose. The reason I believe that is because Jesus taught that. In Matthew 5 and 18, he said, Verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. One scripture says he watches over his word to perform it. Paul seconds this motion with 2 Timothy 3 and 16 when he said all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and every every bit of it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction and instruction. So why, why is it so specific the day, the month, and the year. I'll tell you one explanation for that. According to Genesis chapter 5 and verse 25. Methuselah lived 187 years and begat Lamech. According to Genesis 5 and 28. Lamech lived 182 years and begat a son, which, of course, was Noah. The flood came in the 600th year of Noah's life. So if you add those 600 years with how old his dad was when he was born, And how old Methuselah was when Lamech was born, 182 plus 187 plus 600 is 969. The year Methuselah died, when he died, it came. And that was the prophecy given to his father that was embedded within his name. I think town got pretty shook up whenever Methuselah got the flu. Because the promise was, when this boy dies, it's coming. So, why did God allow Methuselah to live so long? I I think he just may be the greatest example of God's mercy in delaying judgment found in the Bible. It is so fitting that his lifetime symbolizes what I think is the extreme long-suffering of the Lord. Because Methuselah lived longer than everybody else. And I don't care how long you live, God's mercy is going to outlast you. So grateful that we have a long-suffering Lord. Praise God. Amen. And so then it hit me: if Methuselah's name was so significant, then what about the others? I went to Genesis chapter five and I wrote them down, and I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what does that name mean. The first man mentioned, of course, is Adam, or Adam. His name literally means man. Then you have Seth. In Genesis 4 and 25, it said, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. It won't surprise you that the word Seth literally means appointed. He had a boy by the name of Enosh. The word and the name Enosh means mortal or frail or miserable. And in your King James Bible to say, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. But in the Hebrew, it's a lot different. It basically says that's when men began to defile the name of the Lord. Enosh had a boy by the name of Canaan. Canaan means sorrow. Some people wrongly teach this is Canaan. That's not right. Canaan was a son of Ham. Don't get the two confused. Canaan had a boy named Mahalaleel. Whenever you find a word in the scripture that has E-L in it, in the beginning of the word or at the end of the word, just spend a little time studying it because it's probably going to give you a wonderful rich nugget of truth if you'll park and spend some time there. Because Mahalaliu is actually two words. It's Mahalau, which means blessed, Mahalau, El. Or El is the contraction of Elohim, or God. So Mahalau, El, means blessed God. He had a boy by the name of Jared. It's actually a verb, Yarad, which means shall come down. He had a boy by the name of Enoch. The word or the name Enoch means teaching. Enoch, I am convinced, is the first of four generations of prophets who were warning about judgment to come. I can back it up with Jude, verses 14 and 15. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and to all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch name means teaching. Enoch, of course, had a boy by the name of Methuselah and as we have shown you, his name means his death shall bring. Methuselah had a boy by the name of Lamech. The name Lamech means despairing. Rabbinical history says that it was Lamech who killed Cain. That's probably a stretch, but when you read chapter 4 and verse 23, it says that he slew a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. Lamech had a boy by the name of Noah. Noah. The name Noah means to bring relief or rest. And then it hit me, and I put them all together, and this is what it says. Man is appointed to mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. Hallelujah. It's there. And it is my first example to teach you something we're just going to call hidden in plain sight. There it is. God's plan of redemption hidden in a boring genealogy in Genesis that most people never read. You will never, ever be able to prove to me that a bunch of Jewish Jesus-hating rabbis connived to hide a summary of the Christian gospel right in the middle of a genealogy within their venerated Torah. This is the product of supernatural engineering. Something's going on here. Did you hear the song? Breaking something that can't be broken. Doing something that cannot be accomplished. Let let me teach you something I learned while studying the tabernacle of Moses. I've taught you for years, he made the stars also. Five words in the creative account. And what are you going to do with the book of Exodus, chapter 25 through 40? You have 16 chapters that are devoted to the tabernacle. God gave five words to the stars. Sixteen chapters to the tabernacle of Moses. Just in the book of Exodus. It's a big deal. And it's very clear that the tabernacle was always in the middle of the camp. And camped around the tabernacle... I thought for years it was like spokes of a wheel, but it's not like spokes of a wheel or like points on a clock. But literally when you read it, there are four cardinal compass points that are used of east, south, west, and north. I I wish I had time to talk to you about this. Uh, I'll just give it to you very quickly. Daniel chapter seven in Revelation chapter four, both Daniel and John mention a beast that had four faces. The first face was like a lion. The second was like a calf or an oxen. The third was like a man. The fourth was like an eagle. There's so much scripture about this and I just can't afford to chase rabbits and get sidetracked right now. But it's fascinating to study when you study the tabernacle of Moses, even though there were 12 tribes, they were grouped in four groups of three. Three pointed towards the south. Three pointed towards the west. Three pointed towards the north. Three pointed towards the east. Rabbis have always taught that each of these four groups camped under a flag or a standard. They use Numbers 2.17 to prove that. Then the tabernacle of the congregation set forward with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camp. As they encamp, so shall they set forward every man in his place by their standards. Picture the four compass points of north, east, south, and west. Put the tabernacle right in the middle of that. If you study the book of Numbers chapter 1, Numbers chapter 1, specifically numbers how many men between the ages of 20 and 50 capable of going to war in each of those tribes. So I began to study this very, very, very specifically. It says that in Numbers chapter 2 and verse 3, On the east side, toward the rising of the sun, shall they of the standard of the camp of Judah. Even though there's 12 tribes, remember those 12 tribes are broken down into four groups of three tribes. The three headed towards the east were under the flag of Judah, which interestingly enough, even to this day, has a lion on it. The three tribes headed to the south under the banner of Reuben have an oxen on their flag. The three tribes pointed towards the west that were known as the banner of Ephraim have that of a man. And the three tribes tribes pointed towards the north known as the tribe of Dan have an eagle on their standard or on their flag. (laughs) So I started reading numbers chapter 1 and i added up how many how many soldiers were in judah's three tribes and uh, i found something pretty amazing 186,400 and then i went to the south and i numbered reuben 151,450 men. Then I went to the west and I numbered Ephraim, 108,100. And then I went to the north and I numbered Dan, 157,600. How am I going to remember all that, Pastor? I took those numbers and I divided them by four because I was just playing with these numbers, because I know Judah has to camp on the east of the Levites. And if their camp was larger than the camp of the Levites, then the excess would be southeast or northeast, which means they weren't camped in a square they were on the four cardinal points of the compass of north, east, south, and west. So I took each one of these numbers, 186,000 divided by four, 151,000 divided by four, 108,000 divided by four, 157,000 divided by four, and I used an asterisk to represent 4,000 men in each of those tribes. And this is what happened. That Judah was by far the largest. So his camp extended to the east. And was longer than any of the other camps. And Reuben was to the south. And Ephraim was to the west. And Dan was to the north. And there it is. All the way back there. Get in a drone. Fly over the camp. And it's there. All the way back there. Hidden in plain sight. Hidden in plain sight. When you read the book of Malachi, chapter 3 and verse 16, it says you need to fear the Lord and you need to remember his name. There's no place in the Bible where it says you're supposed to forget the name. Or to put another name in the place of the name. It says you are supposed to remember the name of the Lord your God. And you are supposed to fear that God. And you're supposed to talk about him all the time. No name or no place in the Bible is used more than the word Lord. 6,000 782 times in the Bible the word Lord is used. But it might surprise you to understand that the title of Lord is not Lord. Lord is from the Hebrew. Hebrew alphabet's got 22 pictographs in it. The Hebrew language is the oldest language in the world. It's the most unique language in the world. Because it has three specific points. It has pictographs. Each pictograph, or what we would call a letter in their alphabet, has a numerical, a number assigned to it. And it also is a spoken language. It's a very amazing, powerful thing. We, of course, read from the left to the right. But Hebrew is always done from the right to the left. This is what Lord looks like in the Hebrew language. Yod, hey, Vol, hey. this is what it looks like right here. If you, if you would do this in the street language, you've got to understand that, this, that this, very, this very first pictograph, it depicts a hand that is accomplishing something great, because the word "Lord" literally means something great is coming. Something mighty is coming. And so in simple Hebrew street writing, it looks like that. And it literally means a hand that is accomplishing great things. Here is He, which I particularly like, because usually it's spelled H-E-H. It usually is written like this, and it depicts hands that are held up to heaven. The next is vov. It's depicted by a nail. Last, of course, is again. yod heh vov Fascinating stuff. And I'll tell you why. Because when you put it all together, there's something amazing held within this little situation here. Because you've got to realize it's red. From the left or from the right to the left. And so, hand this means behold or reveal. Nail, reveal or behold. Behold the hand. Behold the nail. It's there. Right in that word. Yeshua, HaMashiach. Jesus the Christ. It's hidden in plain sight. The perfect message of redemption is the Lord. Lifted up on a cross. Secured with an iron Do you get it, ladies and gentlemen? Do you understand what I'm trying to show you? That all the way back in Exodus 12, when he said, take the lamb and shed the lamb's blood and put it on the two doorposts of the house and make sure you put it on the lintel or on the threshold. And when you connect the dots... It's there again and again and again. Every number, every place, every name, every detail, every jot, every tittle is a part of a tightly engineered design tailored for our learning, our discovery, our amazement. It's there. It's said that kings can hide things, but it's our honor to be able to search them out. Jesus said it very clearly, ask, and it's a present progressive verb. It means ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on looking, knock and keep on knocking. But he did not say that it's going to be a fruitless, endless quest, that you're going to keep asking and never get an answer, that you're going to keep looking and never discover, you're going to knock and it's never going, that's not what he said. He said, if you keep asking, I will answer. If you keep looking, you will discover, I'll show it to you. If you keep on knocking, that door is gonna be opened. The Bible said he can open a door, and when he does, nobody can shut it. And I know there's people sick all over this country, And I get it, but I remind you what Jesus said when those disciples rattled him out of a good sleep on the bottom of a boat. And they said, don't you care that we perish? And he said, where is your faith? Is your faith in the storm or is your faith in me? My faith is not in the virus. My faith is in the victorious king that we are serving right now. Will you stand with me? I'm telling you, it's right there from the very beginning. Man was going to be appointed the mortal sorrow, but the blessed God was coming down. I'll teach it to you on Wednesday. It's the first word in the Bible. Bereshit is the Hebrew word, but the very first letter in Bereshit literally is a blueprint of a building but the very next letter is someone's coming out of that building and the very last letter is a cross i'll show it to you wednesday but i'm telling you that message is there from the very beginning i'm coming i'm coming i'm coming i'm coming and man is going to be appointed to mortal sorrow but the blessed god shall come down teaching that his death shall bring rest to the people in despair and boy, if we don't need that now, there's enough despair to go around in buckets full. There's enough fear. There's enough anxiety. There's enough inhibition. I'm saying, Lord Jesus, I'm not asking you to be proud or arrogant, but I am asking you to be confident with an understanding of the word that what we're doing is right. What we're doing is biblical, that you were baptized just like they were in the book of Acts. You were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke with tongues, just like they did in the book of Acts. You are praying for the sick, just like they did in the book of Acts. You are believing for a revival in the church and a harvest among the lost. That's Bible. Amen. Come with me. Come with me out of these pews. Come around here before we go. The church should not just be a place to go to. It ought to be a place to go from. And when you go from this place today, go with a confidence, a confidence, God is on my side. I see it. I see it. I see it. Like that prophet years ago, what are we going to do, boss? We're surrounded. And he said, oh, God, would you please open up his eyes and help him to see that around us, amen, it's known as the angel, the Lord of the angel armies. That's what we've got. What's on our side is bigger and greater and mightier and more abundant than anything that we are confronting. Amen. Let's pray in praise right now. Lord Jesus, I thank you, God, for your word, for the accuracy of your word, the way in which you have placed it and put it together with such precision, the way you've engineered this thing, Lord. How in the world could we doubt you now How in the world could we question you now? How in the world could we turn our backs on you now? You've been there, you've never abandoned us, never deserted us, we've never had to beg. Amen. You always provided. You've always been more than enough. There were always baskets that remain, Lord. And we honor you for that right now. Father, from my left to my right, from this platform back to that sound booth, I am believing you, God, to do a mass healing in this crowd right now. If their spirit needs healed, I'm convinced you've got blood for that. If their body needs healed, I'm convinced your stripes were shed for that. If their mind needs healed, I'm convinced, God, there's bomb for our brain. And those thorns that were a curse were turned into a crown. And you put victory, amen, over our thought life. I'm asking you, Lord, right now, to let this church be a means of inspiration, a means of faith, a means of being a witness in this city, Lord, and in his community. Amen. That he, the Lord Almighty, omnipotent, reigneth. He is on the throne. In the name of Jesus, let's sing and worship today. God bless you.